about a uh, three-week recess here. We are back in chapter 16 of Genesis. We have been going through the study of uh, this uh, whole episode with uh, Abraham and Sarai and Hagar. And uh, as I mentioned, I expected at first to get through this lesson in one or two weeks, and we are now on week four. <laughs> but we'll, we'll finish it today, uh, Lord willing. We only have three or four verses. We ought to be able to do that. Uh, but uh, but it has. we have missed a couple weeks because of the snowstorm and then the special, uh, special time last week with uh, James... Walker, was that his name? Walker, yeah, okay. James Walker, and those were good. That was a fruitful time last week with him. Uh, so it's been a while since we've talked about this whole situation with Hagar, so let's kind of review that uh, now and uh, see what we can remember. Who is Hagar? Egyptian maid. Egyptian maid, okay. Who's Egyptian maid? Sarai's, okay. Sarai's maid. And uh, tell me about this story. Where are we in this story? Several times it was pointed out that because God greatly loved Hagar, he gave her the baby. Okay. And children are always a blessing. Okay. 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 How did she happen to uh, have a baby? Okay, so Sarai, being uh, Abram's wife and having been barren now these many, many years and not having a child and, and, uh, and Abram having this promise from God that he was going to have descendants, uh, she ultimately figures the only way to do this is to give her maid to Abram, uh, basically as his concubine or as his wife, uh, and that she could then raise up children or raise up a household uh, through her maid, Hagar. That seem bizarre to us. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? But actually, culturally, it was uh, it was the acceptable thing to do. We're we're still familiar with surrogacy today, and, uh, and we practice it in, in what we think of as a much more culturally refined way today. But that's essentially what they were doing at that point, and 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 culturally, that was the way that was the way it was done. That was the way it, you solved that problem in your life. Was it a good idea? No. No, it was not a good idea. Why not? It wasn't God's way. Well, the guy probably wouldn't be coming next week to speak to us. Well, we addressed, we addressed that a couple weeks ago. Did you? <laughs> okay. It was an interesting yeah. question. Yeah. Uh, we addressed that a couple weeks ago, and we'll, we'll do that here in just a minute. Yes. I don't know the answer to that question. But when we get to the second part of the story, uh, where, you know, 13 years later, it uh, seems to me that she has not had a lot of influence in the life of the child. But that's just, I'm just reading that in the story. I don't know that for sure. So I, I couldn't answer that. That's a good question here. I, I don't know that for sure. Yes? Yes. 
Well, in in the text there, it says in uh, uh, in verse three, it says there at the end of verse three, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. So technically, she is his wife. She's not a wife. Now, this gets kind of complicated, but she's really not. She's not on a peer or a level with Sarai. Uh, she's still subservient to. She's still a servant. She's still a maid of Sarai's, but she is technically his wife. Yes. Is there indications in the lesson that I mean, this was Sarah's idea? No, I think this was her. I think this was her offer. I think the passage. Well, was, who was Hagar for? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't think Hagar had any choice in that. Yeah. Anything else? Did you think of? We created some real problems between Hagar and Sarah. Yes. And between Sarai and. And Abram too, yeah. It just really made a mess all the way around. It created problems for Abraham, or Abram, it created problems for Sarah, it created problems for Hagar. The whole it was just chaos in the whole house. And, and and what we saw by that is that when we in our lives get desperate and seek to take control of our circumstances out of the hands of God and take them into our own hands, uh, we uh, yes. Yes. Right there. Uh, yeah, just go ahead and adjust it however you like it. Uh, where was I? What was I? What was I saying? In the beginning. Difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not that. Don't do that. Don't tell me. Abram and Sarah were having Oh yeah. That that when we take control in our lives that. Uh, that uh, belongs to God and we get desperate like Abram and Sarah do in this case almost inevitably the results are chaos it just creates more problems and this whole situation just descends into chaos uh, so that there's this conflict between Sarai and Hagar there's the conflict between Sarai and her husband and then and then Hagar as we saw the last time we were together Hagar finally Please, because Sarai is treating her so harshly, and we saw what a just absolute act of desperation that was on the part of Hagar. How, because of the culture that she, because of that patriarchal culture that she lives in, she's she's basically she makes herself become a non-person by fleeing from this household. So here we have this this single, relatively young, pregnant woman who is now completely on her own, a non-person, no identification with anybody, no affiliation or no association with anybody to give her any protection or whatever, and she's out there in the middle of the desert. This complete act of desperation. Okay. And then we then we talked about how the angel of the Lord came and met her, and we, we talked all about that the last time we were together. Uh, she encounters the angel of the Lord, and he comes and he tells her that this child that she's carrying as a boy is, is going to be a son, and that he is uh, that he is uh, uh, when he is born he is to be named Ishmael, because the Lord says the angel of the Lord tells her because the Lord has given heed to or has heard uh, your affliction. Okay, and then we talked a little bit about uh, the subject about Ishmael and 
and, and his descendants and that sort of thing because of the promise there or the prophecy that's made there regarding Ishmael. And just uh, uh, for Jim's sake and for somebody who weren't here, just by way of review, and if you want more on this, you can go back and listen, go online and pick up the, the message where we talk about it more in detail. But there is, uh, contrary to the belief of some, there is no historical or anthropological or ethnological evidence that the Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael. Now, I should qualify that, that there are obviously probably some Arabs out there somewhere <laughs> who are the descendants of Ishmael, but the Arabs as a rule are not the descendants of Ishmael. There's no evidence of that, uh, historical or otherwise. And even though it is claimed that by some that Muhammad was himself a descendant of Ishmael, he never claimed that. In fact, he, uh, he was critical of those who tried to make some association between him and Ishmael. He just said, you can't go back that far. You can't trace it back that far. Uh, so there really is no evidence whatsoever that the Arabs, and, and one reason we know this is because the term Arab refers to those who speak Arabic, okay? And we know that many of the peoples of the world who today speak Arabic did not originally speak Arabic, okay? They speak Arabic, and they speak Arabic nowadays because of the uh, because of the Islamic conquest, okay? So uh, back many hundreds of years ago, you have the Islamic conquest as 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 the Muslims try to conquer and take over the whole world, and as they would take over a region or they would take over a people and convert them to Islam, they would also get them to speak Arabic, and they became Arabic-speaking people, and so now we call them Arabs, okay? But ethnologically, uh, they are not descended, uh, they are not all descended from the same place. They're descended from a whole variety of uh, ethnic backgrounds. So, so the point of that, there, there's, there's two reasons why that's important. One is it, it disproves the claim of the Arabs when they say that we are the legitimate descendants of Abram and the promises that were given to Abram apply to us. There's absolutely no basis whatsoever for them to say that. But it's important for us as Christians too because oftentimes uh, you'll hear Christians talk about the Arabs being the descendants of Ishmael. Okay? And and they go back to this prophecy and they see this prophecy here about this conflict that's going to exist between, between Ishmael and everybody else, actually, not just the, the Jews, but between, uh, between uh, the descendants of Ishmael and everybody else. It says his hand will be against everybody, everybody's hand will be against him. And they look at that prophecy and they think, uh, they conclude from that prophecy and the belief that the Arabs are all the descendants of Ishmael, that the conflict between the Arabs and the Israels today is prophetic. And so it's inevitable. We're going to have it. It's an absolute essential thing. There's no hope of any peace. There's no reason to seek peace between the Arabs and the Israels because God prophesied clear back here that it would always be, uh, that there would always be this conflict. There's plenty of historical reasons going back many centuries for the conflicts that exist between the Arabs and the Jews, but it's not rooted in prophecy. Okay, so, yeah. Uh, do you think that's the majority opinion then? Uh, or, or let me try that. That's not to say some of the Arabs are not. There are some Arabs out there somewhere, probably. Because well, I'm just reading, uh, John MacArthur seems to think that, that that's not right. Yeah, well, uh, I would ask John to give me the ethnological and the anthropological evidence. And... Uh, so, uh, well, I'm really doubting you. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, I agree. There's there are many, like I said, there are many Christians out here who well, think that he I is. I guess my problem was I, when they said we are descended from Abraham, I actually believed them. So, there, and and so therefore, 
this would be the way they would have to descend from Abraham. But, so right. what you're saying yeah. is there is no evidence. There's no they evidence. say that, but it's yeah. not true. Yeah, there's no, there's no evidence. So you're saying Unlike with the Jews, with whom we can trace them back all the way to Abraham. So if they're lying about that, they might be lying about something. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily say that they're lying at yeah. this point. They are misled or deceived. I yes. just said that to make the joke. Okay. All right. So that's uh, that's uh, that's my uh, position on the subject. So anyway, well, uh, going on then, picking up in uh, in uh, in chapter 16, we are now in the in the story where God has, uh, and, and when I say God, it's because we understand the angel of the Lord here is a Christophany or a Theophany. It is an actual manifestation or appearance of the Lord in some kind of human-like or angelic-like form, which is actually visible. To Hagar. Okay, so the Lord Himself, God Himself, appears in this theophany or this Christophany to Hagar, and He tells and He and He uh, and He uh, uh, probes her and questions her about where she is, and trying to elicit from her a recognition of her own failure and her own sin. And then He goes on and He tells her this wonderful news that she's going to have a child, uh, and and. Uh, and, and that he is to be named Ishmael. And why is he to be named Ishmael? God hears. Because God hears. Okay. You know, I wonder how often times when we talk about Ishmael, when the subject of Ishmael comes up, do we ever stop to think that really the name Ishmael is, a, is an expression of God's care and God's listening and God's hearing? But we have here with Ishmael, in the birth of Ishmael, we have the evidence that God has heard. Now I'd like to just take a few moments and just kind of kind of go back and think about this woman, Hagar, because I would hope that by the time we're done here this morning, that that your appreciation, your affection for, uh, your admiration and love for this woman would have increased. Uh, this part of the story to me is just stirring and exciting and, and, uh, and, and uh, it's just a wonderful part of the story. But to understand Hagar and to understand where she ends up, it's helpful to understand where she started from. Where is she from? She's from Egypt. And, and we don't know for sure, but what I suggested is, is how this Egyptian woman ends up in in Abraham's clan, in Abraham's clan. Yeah. For taking his wife. For taking what he thought was his sister, but was actually his wife. Yes, okay. So here we have this young Egyptian woman who is presumably already uh, is already a a slave in Pharaoh's house. Or in Pharaoh's household, okay? Or at least Pharaoh has some control. Over her, and we don't know any about anything about her origin, or we don't know anything about her family, but but clearly this is a woman who has been at some point in her life, if she had any family at all, if she was not just born an orphan or abandoned at birth, if she had any family at all, she was at some point ripped out of that family, possibly sold because the family needed money or whatever, or because of debt or whatever, but she is sold into slavery or she is ripped from her family uh, and she ends up a slave in Pharaoh's house. She has no control over her life. She has no control over the circumstances. I think she's a fairly intelligent woman. 
I think she's a pretty sharp lady. The reason I say that is because she ends up, when she ends up in, 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 in uh, Abram's clan, she ends up as Sarai's personal maid. Uh, that's actually a fairly elevated position within the clan that she, that she possesses. So, so I think she's a fairly intelligent woman, but she has no control over her life. She's just here, one of the slaves, possibly even a being, being carried or being prepped to be a concubine or something. Who knows? In Pharaoh's house. And then at some point uh, in that whole fiasco between Pharaoh and Abram, uh, she is bartered away to this obscure, strange nomad from Canaan and his wife. Okay, she is just traded off in part of the bargain. Okay, and she ends up now in this this household, but she has been raised her whole life up to this point in Egypt, and she has. She knows the Egyptian culture and she knows the Egyptian people, but most importantly, she knows the Egyptian gods. She has worshipped the gods of Egypt. And, uh, and, and by the way, while we're thinking about that, turn over to Psalm 135. Because in Psalm 135, the gods of Egypt are described to us from the perspective of, of the psalmist. And... Uh, and actually, he's describing the gods of Egypt and the gods of the other nations that uh, that ultimately are defeated by Israel during the Exodus and, and, and the move to Canaan. But he says in verse 8, he says, He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He smote many nations and slew mighty kings. And then he lists some of the kings that he slew. Uh, and then he says... Uh, uh, in verse 14, for the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations, meaning these nations that he's just been referring to, Egypt and these other nations. The idols of the gods of these nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. She is a woman who has grown up in the worship of these gods of Egypt that we see described here in Psalm 135. And you have to understand, we'll talk about this today, but we'll also talk about it when we get into the story of Rebecca, because I think it plays in the story of Rebecca as well. But you have to understand how difficult it is at this particular point in time for someone who has been raised in these other religions to even be able to comprehend the faith and the religion of Abraham. Okay? Because to everybody else, these gods are so their gods are so tangible to them. Hagar has been raised in a culture where you could see your God. There he was. He was right on the shelf. If you wanted him on your coffee table, you could pick him up and put him on your coffee table. He was very visible. He was very touchable. Okay? And if somebody said, where is your God? Or what does your God look like? Or who is your God? You just point. You say, there is my God. That's what he looks like. And that's how they think. And that's how they thought about God. It had to be a complete shock to this young woman when she is bartered off into the household of this nomad from Canaan. And he starts talking about his God and speaking of worshiping his God. And she says, where is he? And he says... You can't see him. He's a spirit. 
And you know, at that point, if you're an Egyptian, you go, sounds to me like just something you made up in your own mind. This is just a figment of your own imagination. You've just kind of created this God in your own mind. You can't see Him. You can't hear Him. You can't, you know, where is He? Our gods are tangible. We can touch them. (laughs) We know what they look like. You don't even know what your God looks like. And Abraham might say, well, you know, I have seen him on one or, one or two occasions. And then she probably goes, well, why can't I see him? Why can't Sarah see him? Why can't anybody else see him? You know, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? But this is, this is the environment into which Hagar now finds herself. This woman who has all her life known and worshipped these gods of Egypt. Well, then she goes... Uh, the story goes on, uh, however long uh, between the time that she becomes a part of Abram's household and, and this incident uh, with uh, Sarai. Uh, of course, we don't know exactly, but presumably a few years, three, four, five years or whatever. But then this whole thing happens and she ends up finally, uh, as a result of the circumstances, fleeing and going out as we talked about in the last lesson. And God then comes and He appears to her. He appears to her in Christophany. As we mentioned last time to the children of Israel in the wilderness when they first read about this, it must have been startling. they just come out of slavery in Egypt. And now they're hearing about a slave in Egypt who's had an experience with God like Moses has had. Actually seen the living God. And, and so, so the angel of the Lord comes to her and he appears to her and he, and, he, and he speaks to her. And he tells her that she's going to have a child and she, and he, and he tells her that this child is to be named Ishmael because why? God hears. And so now she's encountering this God who is looking at her, who's speaking with her, who is obviously very alive, and who says, "All the time, I've been listening." to the things that you have been suffering. And suddenly she begins to learn some things about the God of Abram. And she finds out that the God of Abram is radically different than the gods of Egypt. For the first thing, he's very clearly alive. The second thing is that while the gods of Egypt have eyes but do not see this God actually sees. And that becomes the whole, the whole issue that we go into there in verse 13 about God being a seeing God. So the, the, the Egyptian gods that she worshipped, they had eyes, but they did not see. And they had ears, but they did not hear. But now she learns that this God of Abram, He hears. And not only does He hear Abram, but He's been listening to her, a pagan woman. And He's been listening to her affliction and to her suffering. And then she realizes that, that if this, this God of Abram, who both sees and hears, has been listening specifically to her, reflection, her affliction, she discovers that He is a God of justice. <clears throat> because He cares about the, the, the wrongs that she has suffered in her life. And, and then she discovers as we see as the whole story unfolds, she discovers that this is a God of relationship. This is, a, this is an intimate God. This is not like these gods that she saw on her shelves in Egypt. 
This is a God with whom you can enter into a personal, intimate relationship and call Him by name and be called by Him by name. And suddenly she sees this stark contrast between the gods of Egypt and this God of Abraham. And whatever Abram had told her about this God, whatever Sarah had told him about this God, and both Abram and Sarah obviously have failed to represent him real well to Hagar in this whole incident, she discovers that this God is really greater and better than either Abram or Sarah. Well, I tell you, how many people in our own lives need to have an encounter with God where they see that He's really better than we are? You know, how many people have we let down? How many people have we failed? And it's only God's mercy that they might see and they might know that we are only a dim shadow of what He is like. But she discovers this about Him and she... And, and then it says, after, after she's had this encounter and God has told her this, He says in verse 13, it says... Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. Do you notice what she did there? What did she do? What did she do? Okay, but what did she do to God? unusual, it should jump right out at you. It doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture. She gives God a name. Nowhere else in Scripture does man give God a name. But she gives God a name. Usually it's the other way around, isn't it? You know, Moses shows up on the mountain there in the fiery furnace and stuff, and he says, fiery bush, and he says, uh, he says, who are you? You know, what is your name? God says, I am Yahweh. Usually it's God telling us what His name is. But here, this pagan woman gives God a name. Because she has discovered, she has learned that God's eyes have been upon her all along. And she did not know it. And and to flip back to Psalms again, there's another psalm just close to the one we just looked at. Look in Psalm 139. The psalmist discovers the same wonderful thing about God, and he says in Psalm 139, he says in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the light is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike. And Hagar discovers that God sees her. No matter where she is and no matter what she's doing and no matter how hard she is trying to flee from her circumstances and to flee from Sarah, uh, maybe even to hide from God, that darkness and light are alike to Him. He sees it all. And He's seen her from the very beginning. He saw her in Egypt. 
when she was a young child in Egypt. He saw her when she was a slave in Pharaoh's house. She saw her when she was traded or bartered off to Abram. She saw him. She saw her in Abram's house all those years, and she saw the day that Sarai took her and gave her without any choice or volition of her own to Abram. He saw her when she conceived. She, he saw her when she was mistreated by Sarai. He saw her when she mistreated Sarai. And he saw her when she fled. And when she got to the, to the spring of water on the way to Egypt, he came and he found her there and he appeared to her. And she is now overwhelmed that she has seen the God who sees. And so she says, you are the God who sees. Now I want you to notice, it says that she gave him this name. You are the God who sees. But you notice it's not, he is the God who sees. In other words, and to pardon the analogy here, this is her kind of personal, intimate name for God. It's how she talks to God when it's just her and God. It's not that she goes around and everybody and says to everybody, God's name is the God who sees. It's not that. It's that in her personal relationship with God, she refers to him as the God who sees. Some of you may have that in your own marriages. <laughs> Some couples do that. They have their little kind of cute little personal names, you know. They don't use it in public. They may not even use it in front of the kids, but it's that funny little name by which the husband refers to the wife and the wife refers to the husband and nobody else really knows about it but it's just our cute little name for one another. Why? Because we are intimate and we have this intimacy with one another that no one else has. She has several names for me actually. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't share that. <laughs> Some of them probably aren't all that complimentary either. <laughs> so so, well, she's also addressing him in this. Yes, yes. She has now entered into a personal relationship with the living, seeing, hearing God. I can't prove it conclusively, but I think this is the hour of Hagar's conversion. And she calls God the God who sees, because now she knows that her whole life is. Her, his eyes have been upon her. And I think this story here is maybe one we ought to reflect on. It's probably not the only thing we should think about to answer this question, but when, when, when oftentimes when skeptics and even some of us as Christians wrestle with issues of, uh, about God and faith in God, one of the questions that comes to our mind is, what about the heathen? What about the heathen? Well, here's an example of what about the heathen. Here's a woman in Egypt, a slave, a nobody. And God's eyes have been upon her from the very beginning. And he has been orchestrating providentially in her life to bring her to a point where she could encounter the living God. And he has heard her affliction. He has seen her sin and he has pointed it out to her. Where are you from? Where are you coming from? And where are you going? He has seen all that, but more than that, he has seen and heard her affliction. He has come to her in an hour of grace. 
and given to her a child as a gift because of her affliction. And now she knows this. And she says to him, My name for you is you are God who hears. Because, and then she gives the reason there in verse 13, and that's a very difficult passage uh, to uh, translate out of the Hebrew, I understand. Uh, but the, literally it means I have looked on the back of the one who sees. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I've looked on the back of the one who sees. Can you imagine Moses writing this down for the first time? The one who himself was allowed to look on the back of God. But I have looked on the back of the one who sees the idea, and it's translated kind of funny here in the New American, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the the sense here in the New American, the way it's translated, is uh, is have I even remained alive here after seeing him? And it seems like the idea there is she's kind of surprised that she survived this thing, and and, and we understand the legitimacy of that and, and and that could possibly be translated that way but, but given the context I think the better translation of it is uh, she calls him the God who sees because she said I have seen the one who sees we don't all get to do that in fact the Lord said to Thomas he said blessed are those who have not seen and believe so we don't all get to see but here was a woman for whom, whatever reason, for whatever reason, God descended, or God condescended, excuse me, to make himself visible to her. Maybe because the whole thing with these visible idols was so entrenched in her, she just, maybe it was a stumbling block she just couldn't get across and get over. And, and, and so God knew that, that he had to condescend to her in a special way, and so he appears to her. He reveals himself to her. And she is overwhelmed by this. And she says, I have seen the God who sees. And no longer now is it Abram's God or Sarah's God. It's Hagar's God. Well, what now? God has said to her, Return to Sarai and submit yourself to her hand. The word hand there is the same word that's used early in the passage to refer to Sarai's harshness. So God is telling Hagar now, this God who hears her affliction, who sees her, whose eyes is upon whose eyes upon her, who has graced her now with this child Ishmael. This God is saying to her, go back and submit yourself to Sarai's harshness. How does she do that? How does she do that? She does do it. We see that she does it. I thought if you lived right, everything would be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> There went the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel out the window, didn't it? Well, before we answer the question, before we answer the question, how did she do it? Maybe we should ask the question, why does God tell her to do it? And we address this. We talked about this a little bit when we were together last on this passage. So let's review that. Why does God tell her to go back? 
God approves of slavery. It's not that God is sanctioning slavery here. But within the culture, this is the only way that this woman and her child can be protected. Now, ultimately, eventually, as we will see 13 years later, they get sent out, her and her child. Okay? And God actually approves of that, of them being, being uh, sent out. Okay? Um, well, you, you ladies just, we, you can't get that thermostat. <laughs> you go right ahead, Margo. Uh, so, every time they do that, I lose my train of thought. What was I saying? In the beginning. <laughs> also, Rick, I think that she's part of a bigger plan. He wants to get the plan back on track. Okay, yes. He, she is, she's part of this bigger plan, and, 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 and it's all got to get back on track. But, but the issue is, I remember where we were now, the issue is that, that that child needs to be protected. And ultimately we'll see that God does send him out and he goes out in a very vulnerable But at that point, the child then has reached maturity. He's reached 13 years of age. Now here's something for you to think about. I don't know the answer to this question, but it did, it did kind of pop in my mind that when finally Isaac is born, it becomes necessary, as we shall see, that Ishmael be sent away. So the two cannot grow up side by side. They've got to be separated. But Ishmael cannot be sent out until he's old enough to be able to handle it. And so I just wonder, if Abram's sin with Hagar actually delayed the birth of Isaac. Is it possible that God had to wait 13 years to give them Isaac just to wait for Ishmael to reach maturity so that he could be sent out and live? That's a little speculation there, but I'm fairly sure in my own life that my interference with God's plans has at times made it necessary for God to wait a little longer and get things straightened out that I've messed up. Well, Rick, you know that might explain... I wasn't sure where we were, so I read this morning on into chapter 17 where God says, and I will establish my covenant with you. And I thought, wait a minute. Why is he saying that again? Isn't that already been established? Why isn't... So maybe that would explain some of that if he indeed did wait the way we and yeah. now he's having to establish the covenant in the form of Isaac. Well, that's a good thought. Yeah. Well, anyway, like I say, I can't, I can't answer that. But the striking thing about Hagar to me is that when she fled from, the, from, from Abram's home, when she fled from Sarai, she went out a bigger woman. She went out a proud woman. She went out a rebellious woman. She came back a worshiper. She came back humble. When she left, she was despising Sarai. Why? Because 
she, Hagar, was pregnant and Sarai couldn't get pregnant. Now she understands about affliction. Now she understands when one is afflicted, they are afflicted of God. And you don't mock somebody when they're afflicted. You don't despise somebody else who suffers when you don't suffer. Because now she understands suffering. And she understands... Now, if God was listening to her cries in her suffering, that that same God must be listening to Sarai's cries in her suffering. And so, I don't know what the dynamic was between them in those 13 years after she returns, but I cannot help believe it had to be better than it was. If for no other reason than Hagar's attitude had changed. I don't know I, I like to believe that. Yeah, I like to believe that, Rick. I, uh, I think as she comes back now broken and understanding and worshiping the living God, how could it have not had an impact on Sarah? Yeah. I'm sure there were many conflicts in the 13 years. I'm sure there were many problems. But I, but I cannot help believe that it didn't have, a, didn't have an impact. And even, even a rebuke to Sarai that this woman that she has so mistreated comes back having had this experience with her own God. You know, just uh, it, it probably served as a rebuke in Sarah's life, I'm sure. So at any rate, those are things we can ponder. But she comes back, and, and the name of that place then where she encountered God is called Bir Lehobroi, which means the well of the living one who sees. It just has that name now. This is the well of the living one who sees. It actually becomes important in the life of Isaac. And we will see Isaac has uh, some experiences there at Bir Lahoroi. But it is a, the place of her encounter with God. And it's named after that encounter with God. And then she returns to, to Abram's household and she, we see the last couple of verses there, it's emphasized several times. Hagar has a child. This child, Ishmael, is born. She gives birth to this son. And, and he is called Ishmael. But who names him Ishmael? Abram names him Ishmael. Well, why would Abram name him Ishmael? Okay, how would God have gotten that message to him? Well, I'm sure that when... Came back, she told him why she's coming back. And she says to Abram, God said to name him Ishmael because he's heard. You call him God hears. Because God hears. Now, when Abram hears that, what is Abram thinking? Huh? Okay, but what is he thinking specifically about Ishmael? He thinks he's the one. He thinks God's heard me. And it will actually be 13 years before Abram realizes he's still deeply mistaken. Because when God comes to him and says, well, we're going to have a child, and he goes, whoa, 
No, it's, it's, it's Ishmael. Remember, God, it's Ishmael. God says, no, it's not Ishmael. Isaac. So, Abram, he's still kind of living in this unreal world, you know, and oftentimes when we do take control out of God's hands and into our own hands, it sometimes takes a while before we realize how seriously mistaken we've been. But so he names him Ishmael, and the child is born, and then the story will go on. But just in just one last thought before we finish here tonight, today, this morning is, is there's this place now. And, and, and Moses identifies it specifically. He says it's this place called Bir Lahoroi, and it's, it's, between, uh, it's between Kadesh and Barrett. You know where it is. It's that place. It's the place where Hagar encountered the living God and discovered that God, no matter where she fled or no matter where she tried to go or how dark things were, that darkness is not darkness with Him. That darkness and light are alike to Him and He sees it all and He hears everything and he, she there entered into a personal worshiping relationship with that living God. That place. Remember that place? And whenever I encounter things like this, like Bethel or Beer Leroy or whatever, I'm always led to think about the Beer Leroy's or the Bethels in my own life. There are places. There are geographical places that if we had the time and the money or whatever, I could take you to them. Some of them we wouldn't have to travel very far. Some of them we'd have to travel halfway around the world. There are places I could take you. And there aren't very many of them in my own experience, but there are places I could take and say, right here, on this little piece of geography, I encountered the living God. And I heard Him. Not audibly, but He spoke to me. And I saw Him, not visually, but with eyes of faith, I saw Him. And there are times, I think, when we need to go back to our Beer Leroy's. Now, we may not be able to go back there geographically, but in our hearts and in our minds, we need to go back. Not so that we can relive the experience, because you can't ever do that. But so that you can remember those times when you encounter God. You must remember those times. So much of the story of the Old Testament, and even when we get into the New Testament, remember the whole thing with the Last Supper, the Lord says, as often as you do this, you do this what? In remembrance of me. And God's all about us remembering those special times, those special events in our life where He's met us and spoken to us in a special way. And so with everything else we've said today, the thing I would encourage you to do is to remember in your own life those beer Leroy's and remember that God sees and that God hears and especially today, he is alive. Okay? Well, next week we'll go on to chapter 17.